This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. This week, you can listen to a sneak peek of The Last Days of the Midnight Ramblers, written by Sarah Tomlinson, narrated by Helen Laser. Mari stared back at her, enraptured not by her beauty, but by how real she seemed. She had lived in the world in a way Mari never had, without the filter of a book, a computer, a glass of wine, a certain ironic detachment. There were faint lines around Anka's dark eyes. She looked tired. She had earned it. She had loved, married, birthed a son, seen the world, inspired how many songs? Been a player in one of the great dramas in pop culture. Sure, Mari envied Anka, but Mari knew things too, how legacies were made. She not only needed to help Anka in order to help herself, but she was moved to help Anka. Start listening to The Last Days of the Midnight Ramblers by Sarah Tomlinson now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today my guest is Maura Cheeks, author of Acts of Forgiveness, named a most anticipated book by Elle, Real Simple, and more. The novel imagines the country has just passed the nation's first reparations bill for Black families. Maura has published writing in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Paris Review, and Tin House, among others. In 2019, she was awarded a masthead reporting residency with The Atlantic, where she produced the feature-length article that would later inspire the idea for this book. Acts of Forgiveness is her first novel. Welcome, Maura. Thanks for being here, and congratulations on Acts of Forgiveness. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, this is just such a phenomenal read, so thought-provoking. It was one of those books where I you know, was reading and reading, and at the end, well, the book wasn't out yet, and I was just ready to, to like... <laughs> you know, just tell about it to everyone I know. But then also I'm like, oh, but it's a tease because they can't get it yet. But I loved it. And I was reaching out to your publicist, just being like, thank you for sending it. It was so good. I was so drawn in by these characters. I would love to hear a little bit more about the book and really just sort of the world that the book imagines. Yeah. I started writing the book in 2019 after I had recently finished an article about the racial wealth gap for the Atlantic. And I was thinking about all of these uh, systemic inequalities and structures that have been in place that really help this gap between specifically, you know, white Americans and black Americans, um, the wealth gap that exists that allows, you know, the average white family to have about six times more wealth than the average black family. And so, you know, I was um, sort of steeped in that research for the article and then continuing to have, you know, some questions that were arising from a couple of interviews that I did. And so, fiction became a way for me to explore some of those questions. Um, and I wanted to imagine a point in the country where we weren't still debating whether reparations is worth passing, but start the book at a point where it's almost we've gotten through that period of deliberation. And now it's imagining what if it actually already passed? What would that be like for one family. And I wanted to center it on one family because I think 
a lot of times the conversation gets centered around politics and statistics. And I wanted to try and bring some humanity back into the conversation and really focus on the experience of one family. I thought it was so interesting to see that depiction of what would happen when the law passes and like what kind of red tape and bureaucracy would that family be up against? And the librarian in me also really liked seeing the way that libraries kind of became a big part of this because all Mm -hmm. of a sudden it's a hoop that people have to, to go through to all of a sudden figure out how to do all of this genealogy research and find family records and it's almost a bit of a mystery in the book as well, sort of like, are they going to be able to find traces of family history? Could you talk a little bit about how you kind of crafted that part of the story? And if there was, you know, real research you did or anything, because I I just thought that whole storyline was fascinating and also just shows how complicated, how complicated it becomes in the story, because you're having to prove that you, you know, should get this money, but there's such a lack of records or, you know, you have to be like a trained genealogist practically to overcome this red tape. So I just thought that part was so interesting. Yeah. I think a couple of things that, you know, I wrote one draft of the book that didn't go into the research as um, detailed as the final draft. And so I wrote one draft and then I realized, you know, there was a lot more work I had to do to understand what it's like to actually steep yourself in genealogy research. Um, And so I read a book called um, Finding a Place Called Home, which really goes into how specifically African-Americans can use certain documents to retrace their lineage. Um, And then I actually went to uh, Mississippi and met with folks at the Department of Archives and uh, the Historical Foundation in Natchez and sort of mimicked the journey of Willie, the protagonist in the book. And I met with the employees there. They were amazing to work with. And I said, you know, if you had this amount of information, like what would you do? Where would you look? Um, What kind of documents would you have to sift through? And so I wanted to sort of mimic that experience of somebody who has like pieces of information and understand what, where they would go, what they would maybe find. Um, And I think, you know, part of what I explore in the book is that um, the, you know, understanding if something like this did pass, it would be a little bit messy and it would be hard for, perhaps some um, black families to prove their lineage. And so I wanted to explore that aspect of it as well, which is the reality of certain records being destroyed and, you know, um, slaves not being treated as human and therefore their records, records were lost. And so, um, yeah, I, I did a lot of research to understand the perspective of someone who has pieces of information from their family and um, what they would need to do in order to sort of put the puzzle pieces together. I'm so fascinated by this part of it. Could you talk a little bit about what the, when you went to the archives, what sorts of documents they said might be available specifically for African-Americans kind of digging into their genealogy? Yeah, I think um, 
it, you know, it's different based on what information you're coming with. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the book, I'm trying to describe this in a way that doesn't really go away. Yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, trying to understand what you would find from something like ancestry.com. And then, um, you know, there's certain records like marriage certificates, for example, that, um, you know, the employees in the archive said that, you know, if you have a, at least a date range, you can probably find marriage certificates. If you have, you know, maybe one name of your relative, that might be something you could find um, in court documents. Um, You know, a bill of sale that records, perhaps, um, if your ancestor was a slave, that might come up if you know the family that they were owned by. Um, So yeah, I mean, Finding a place called home, that book that I mentioned too, is really helpful in terms of um, understanding which types of documents you might be able to find based on the information that you have. Well, and I know that, you know, even though this reparation, reparations have not gotten very far federally, but I was reading in your Substack newsletter, Show Don't Tell, that mm-hmm some local communities have taken action. Have they gone about it in a similar way to sort of how it unfolds in the book? Or can you talk a little bit about some of those cases and how maybe those laws have been enacted? Yeah, I actually have a New York Times piece that recently came out. Um, It came out today, but I don't know when this will air. When this goes up, I'll link to the article. Okay. Um, yeah, that that looks at the differences between um, local initiatives that have been passed versus what a federal policy might look like. I think the benefit of local initiatives, for example, in Evanston, Illinois, they did this where um, you can define a specific harm that you're trying to correct. So for example, Evanston looked at redlining. And so if you could prove that you were um, harmed or a descendant Um, of someone who was harmed by redlining, then you were eligible for a housing grant. So I, and they, how would somebody prove it? What kind of document would you? Yeah. I mean, I think you would have to have documents that your family kept right from perhaps being denied a loan from the bank or being pushed to purchase a certain home in a part, in a certain neighborhood. Um, And so Yeah, I think I don't know the extent to which like softer evidence is acceptable in Evanston. Um, I'm I'm not a policy expert in that sense. I don't know what they accept, but I think that that's an option as well, right? Which is like, um, you know, oral histories that have been passed down, and whether that's I talk about this a little bit in the book too of of whether you know, oral histories and, um, you know, just family photographs. Like, does that count as evidence? And would that count as evidence? So I think that's an interesting thing. It's so interesting that, and I mean, I guess I don't know how, how they would do it otherwise, but it just in the book and in that example in Evanston, it's just like the burden of proof is on the people who were harmed and, you know, the fact that, I mean, why would you, I guess some people might have, but it's, it's so likely that you would just throw out a loan application that was denied, 
never thinking that, you know, you might need that someday or certain records or it's just, it's really, and I just thought that was such an interesting part of the book too, that all of a sudden, you know, the only way you're going to get the money is if you either have the means to go find the records or um, your family happens to have saved things. Like it just, yeah. I don't know what the solution is, but it's it's just really interesting. That's part of also why I named it the Forgiveness Act, because I think if you if you think about forgiveness, the burden is also on the person who's been harmed to sort of mm. do the work to get there. Um, so it was a little bit of a a play on words there too, just by calling it the Forgiveness Act, understanding that um an act of forgiveness requires a lot of work on the person who's been harmed. That's so interesting. Um, well, it it's a book that, you know, right when I heard the premise, I was so interested to see how this was going to play out and, you know, what the experiences of the characters were going to be. And I'm just wondering, you know, was your path to getting an agent and a publisher speedy? Like as soon as they heard the idea and kind of where you were going to take it? Was it, what is it a quick path to like getting signed and everything? What was your road to debut? Like, I guess. Yeah. Um, I would say it was both very slow and very quick. <laughs> <laughs> I had an agent based on previous nonfiction work that I had published. And so I first landed an agent. Yeah. Based on, a nonfiction project that I was going to work on that didn't end up coming to fruition. Um, It didn't feel like the right book for me to write at that time. Um, And so then I pivoted and started working on acts of forgiveness. Um, And I actually ended up getting my current agent once I had a draft of acts of forgiveness. Um, And that um, process my current agent, Stephanie, I love her. She understood what I wanted to do with the book. Um, and so that happened pretty quickly. And then we went out on submission about three months after I signed with Stephanie um, and got interest from um, about three editors. And so, yeah, I mean, that process was also pretty quick. I think, um, my current editor or my, my editor, Chelsea also, um, you know, really understood what I wanted to do with the book. We had similar visions. And so it kind of, um, snowballed from there. Well, related to that, I feel like your newsletter has some helpful information for writers. You give some advice about what you might be able to do to kind of position yourself to land an agent. Could you talk about that a little bit? Anything you would recommend to writers um, who are kind of on that journey right now? Yeah, I think um, I did a lot of reading sort of like the short author biographies in the back of the books of writers that I admired. And I looked at where they were published and I tried to make a list of like, okay, well, you know, this art, this author got published here. And so let me try and pitch, pitch this outlet. Um, and so I made a short list based of, based on dream outlets, um, sort of modeled after authors that I admired. Um, and so I think the 
best advice I can give is just try to build credibility based on your craft. So whether that's like publishing short stories or um, publishing nonfiction pieces that are in line with the subject matter of your project, I think that that will help you stand out when you're going to query agents to just say, you know, I've written about this or I've been published X, Y, and Z. Um, I think agents just get so many emails that you need to have um, some way of differentiating yourself that lends credibility to your work. Do you have any, so it's, it's making me think of it because of you saying that the New York Times article is coming out. Are you sort of approaching promotion in a similar way? Because I feel like with this book, it seems to certainly lend itself to maybe getting readers' attention through different, um, you know, articles or essays and things. Is that kind of part of the promotion plan for this? Yeah, I think it's it's a tough line, right? Because I'm not a policy expert. And so right. I think, you know, I'm writing about things from the perspective of being a Black woman and then also studying this for the book and studying it for my Atlantic piece. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's part of the promotion piece, but a lot of it is, um, it, it's both, it's both writing about, um, reparations, but also writing about craft. And so mm-hmm. finding a way for the two to coincide. So in the New York Times piece, you know, it, it talks a little bit about federal versus local reparations, but also why I chose to explore a federal reparations program in fiction, um, as opposed to a local reparations policy. So I think I'm trying to find ways for the two to, to sort of coincide, understanding that I am definitely not an economist or a policy expert. <laughs> I write fiction. (laughs) Well, craft-wise, is there a part of the book that you maybe had the most difficult time with, like getting the structure right, or like was revision a bear? Is there a part that was particularly challenging in the actual writing process? Um, I did a lot of listening to um, NPR interviews and previous presidential speeches to get a sense of the cadence of speech. Um, I think something that was a little difficult from a craft perspective is that you have sort of um, minor characters relaying pretty big pieces of information, which um, in, I think that's pretty common in a lot of um, sort of political, political novels because your other option is to have the protagonist be (laughs) a politician or something. Right. So I think I did a lot of thinking about how people receive um, pretty momentous information via the news. Right. So I tried to sort of mimic that experience. And then obviously, you know, I started writing the book in 2019 and then 2020 happened where everything in the world was turned upside down. And then suddenly we were actually getting a lot of information from the news in a way that we hadn't been when I first started writing the book. And so that helped me also kind of think about what it's like when there's a really big political moment and everyone is really glued to um, the TV and sort of ingesting bits of news anytime they can. So I tried to mimic that experience. Oh, that's so interesting. I could 
I, I wouldn't have picked up on that, but now that you say it, that parallel in there is, is really interesting. Um, as you were going through the writing process and revision and maybe even kind of on this debut journey, are you someone who a writing community has maybe played a part for you? Yeah, I think definitely having a writing community helps. Um, I'm a little bit more guarded about like when I show my work to people because I think it's it can be hard and, and um, discouraging if you're still trying to figure out what you're doing with your work. Um, but I definitely have people who, you know, I... I share my work with um, and to, I sort of wrestle with, um, you know, these larger craft conversations with, I think it's really important to, but I think it's important to find the sort of community that works for you. I think, you know, workshopping isn't for everyone. I think it can be really discouraging for some people um, because it's sort of built around a framework of giving pretty critical feedback. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to find what kind of community works for you. Like if you have a specific craft question you're trying to wrestle through, like maybe you take a course right through, I took a lot of courses through the shipment agency. I really love um, courses taught by Garth Greenwell, for example. So I think community can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't just have to mean, you know, getting workshopped and, all of your work being <laughs> torn to shreds. Yeah. No, that's helpful because I think sometimes that's the first thing we think of for writing community or, or getting any kind of feedback, but there probably are other ways to go about it as well. Well, can you also tell us a little bit about what your writing routine is like? Yeah, um, it changes, but I think, you know, generally I write, I try to write early in the morning. So around like 5.30 a.m. until about 7.30 if I can, if my dog lets me. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and then I will use sort of later in the day for research or revision. But I try and get a good um, chunk of my writing done, my creative writing done early in the morning. Cause I just feel like I edit myself where I'm a little bit less critical. Um, and then I'll save periods in the day for either research or um, going over something I wrote previously. Are you in that time trying to hit like a certain goal every day or word count or something? Or are you kind of just like, I'm going to, sit down for this amount of time and I get where I get? Um, It varies. For acts of forgiveness, I was very specific about trying to hit a thousand words a day um, because I just wanted to make sure I finished the draft. And now I'm working on my second book and it's very different. It's more, I do it more based on scenes I'm working on or different pieces of the book that I'm wrestling on. So yeah, I kind of switch based on the project, I would say. Are you able to say anything about the second book yet? Uh, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to hear too if there, you know, I just, I feel like I had such a wonderful reading experience with this book and it was just so thought provoking and interesting. And I'm curious if there have been any reading experiences you've had lately where um, you've also kind of rushed out recommending the book to people. (laughs) Um, I finally read Erasure by Percival Everett, which is what the movie American fiction is based on. Um, And I really enjoyed, really enjoyed that book. 
Well, you know, I'm just curious as you sort of start to bring the book out into the world, are there things you hope that readers take away or have you gotten any feedback yet from readers that has either like surprised you or meant anything to you? Yeah, I, I, I've gotten some feedback from people who said, you know, oh my gosh, I just feel like totally seen from this book. And that makes me feel great. I think, um, you know, I want it to, there's so many people who want to know more about their family history, but um, if you ever ask maybe older members in your family, it's like very hard to get specific answers. (laughs) Like there's always sort of like an anecdote that goes somewhere that is not what you were intending to hear, but it doesn't really give you real information. So I kind of wanted to explore that feeling. Um, And I don't know. I mean, I hope readers just maybe think about the concept of reparations in a different way. Um, I write about this in the New York times piece, but it's sort of a punchline sometimes. And so I wanted to explore, um, you know, in literary realism, what it could actually mean for a family. And so, yeah, I think if readers perhaps just even think about the concept a little bit differently, um, that would be, that would be a win. I think that's what's so powerful about exploring something like this in fiction, as you were saying, for one family, when you're really, you know, kind of walking through somebody's shoes and hearing their family history and seeing different ways that, harm through generations has surfaced. Um, I just think that can be so powerful versus hearing statistics or kind of like an overarching history. I think it's, it's, it is really powerful to zoom in on one family in in fiction in terms of um, getting people to think about it in different ways. So I think that's really powerful. And I have a feeling a lot of people are really going to be buzzing about about this book. So um, I'm excited to, to be hearing all of that. And um, just congratulations on Acts of Forgiveness. And without pressuring, I will just very much look forward to the next book, <laughs> as I'm sure others will be. And um, best of luck with all the promotion and um, with your current writing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.